Hello and greetings again in the name of the Lord Jesus. As you find your way to a seat, um, it's my delight to greet you and welcome you to Covenant Presbyterian Church. If you're visiting with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here to worship God with us. Um, please take a moment. There are some pew pads on the side of the pews everywhere where you're sitting. Take a moment to fill that in, whether you're a member or a visitor. It's, it's helpful to us as pastors and shepherds to know that information so we can follow up and help you, if you're new or visiting, to connect and, and grow deeper um, with the community here. So please take a moment to do that. Um, also, I just want to point out and have it on your radar, the, the schedule for the coming week. We have Christmas Eve services, three services on Saturday at 11 a.m., 4.30 p.m., and then 6 p.m., um, and you see that there is nursery and child care for two of those. And then also on the Lord's Day, December 25th, we'll have gathered worship at 10.30, no Sunday school, just gathered worship together uh, the very next day, and it'll be awesome to worship God together on that Lord's Day. And then a last mention um, this uh, for financial stewardship as we go to the end of the year, I want to encourage all of us just to be prayerfully considering these things and also to pray for our church, our deacons, who do such a wonderful and faithful job of helping um, the session and stewarding finances and making wise and godly decisions um, with those things. And so take a moment to pray for our diagonal, for those who are coming in as new deacons, um, and for the church's financial stewardship for the upcoming year. That would be great. And now Bob is going to come and pray for us. Thank you, Josh. Merry Christmas, everyone. Y'all please pray with me. <clears throat> Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great privilege of gathering together to worship you this morning, especially here in Covenant Family. Father, we, we love being together. Father, we rejoice in the deep mercies you continue to show us. Father, you sent your own son to be born of woman under the law to redeem us so that we might be adopted as your own sons and daughters. Glory to you, Father. Glory to God in the highest. Now, because we are your children, our hearts are full of joy, coming to you even as Abba, Father. Father, as we remember and celebrate your great gift to us during this Christmas season, we come together this morning truly desiring to praise and honor you. Thank you, Father, for going before us, for never leaving us, for never forsaking us. We really do rest in knowing that you hear our prayers, Lord. We see your hand at work all around us, and we have much to be thankful for. Father, we know all good things come from you. Father, we thank you for the officers and leaders you've just called to serve our church. Father, please bless them. Bless their families as they give of their time and talents to covenant. Father, please comfort Ivan and Courtney Wright in the loss of his father. Father, thank you for the birth of Elisha Kukushkin. And Father, please hear our prayers, for our continued prayers for Jamie Shields. And bless Catherine Driscoll as she recovers from surgery. Finally, Father, we pray for our mission partners, Caroline and Carter McWhorter, serving in Thailand. 
Father, I pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit out upon them, allow them to see your hand at work. Father, thank you for fellowship and family as we celebrate your faithfulness this morning. And we do ask again for your spirit to move, that we might honor and glorify you in worship. In Christ, your Son's precious name, we do pray, Father. Amen. As you might imagine, there are lots of prayer meetings uh, throughout the week at Covenant Presbyterian Church. One of those meetings is on Tuesday mornings when all your pastors get together in my office at 8.30 and we pray for you, pray for one another, pray for the life of our church. And then we typically have something to talk about, some sort of uh, ministry focus or something. This week, uh, the topic of apologetics came up while we were talking. And apologetics is uh, defending the faith against those who don't believe it. That's kind of what apologetics is. We were just kind of talking about it. And at one point, Henry Morris, our newest pastor, uh, reminded us that R.C. Sproul uh, was an apologist and often uh, got in debates with people that didn't believe in Jesus and didn't believe you could trust the Bible. And sometimes he debated very smart people. And, uh, and sometimes those debates were difficult but I always had one question he could bring up that was very helpful that put his opponents on their heels. In the middle of those debates, R.C. Sproul would turn to his opponent and say, what do you do with the guilt? And it always arrested uh, his opponents because everyone could connect with that. Everyone knows what it is to feel guilty. And it was a really significant and profound question. And one that if you don't know Jesus is really, really, really hard to answer. You're sitting here with me today and I want to ask you the same question. Believer or searcher, visitor, what do you do with the guilt? We're studying the servant songs and Isaiah, we've come to the fourth one. I want to read it to you today. This is God's own provision for the guilty. Will you please read it with me? It's printed on the 13th and 14th page of our worship guide. It's also, of course, in your Bible. The fourth servant song from Isaiah 52 and 53. This is what Yahweh says. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, Father, we ask you that by your word and through the agency of the Holy Spirit, you would help us see Jesus exalted and glorified before our very eyes so that we will believe in him, love and adore him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you will look with me on your worship guide on the 15th page, I just want to review with you really quickly that we have been looking at the four servant songs from the book of Isaiah together. They begin in that section of chapter 40 to 55. It's a big section of Yahweh's salvation, Yahweh's hope that's going to come to people who are going to be really miserable. They've been unfaithful. They're going to get the consequences of their unfaithfulness. They're going to be, they're going to go into exile, but there's a word of hope for those people. And uh, central to the word of hope, God's word of salvation for the people that are going to be in dire straits is he sending a servant. So it's printed there for you at the top of page 15. But just to remember in chapter 42, we saw that Yahweh's servant is going to come and bring Yahweh's justice, his good and right ways to the nation. The coastlands are waiting for it. He will, he will, he will bring God's good, just, and right ways to the nations. No one can stop him. He's even going to include the weak, those with little power with him. He's not going to snuff them out. No, he's going to pick them up and take them with him and bring his Yahweh's faithful justice to the nations. Secondly, in Isaiah 49, we saw that the servant is Yahweh's light to the nations. That means he's bringing God's salvation to the nations. So that's the role of the servant. He's going to bring God's justice to the nations. 
And he's going to bring the light of God's saving ways to the nations. That's his role. Then we looked at Isaiah 50, and that's about the preparation for the servant. And here's how the servant gets prepared to do Yahweh's will, to bring his justice and to bring his salvation. He listens and obeys. See, he's different from all the other agents that Yahweh had ever sent. Because all of Yahweh's special agents had always failed to listen at some point and failed to obey. But not this servant. He will listen and obey. Even though, backing up, Isaiah 49, 6 tells us already that he'll be despised. And Isaiah 50 says he'll listen and obey and he'll be abused. They will treat him terribly. He will be spat upon. As we saw last week, the true fulfillment of all these servant songs really crashes into the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is ultimately God's servant who's come to rescue us and rescue the nations. And there's all kinds of ways the New Testament tells us that. But today we get to the climax of the work of the servant. And today we're going to see his central task. How is it that Yahweh's servant is going to bring Yahweh's justice and his salvation to the nations? What will be the true meaning of his listening ear and his obedient life Well, where will that land him? So today we're focusing on the central task that the servant will do that will bring all of these promises to fulfillment. And so today, so you can follow on with me, I want to show you that our passage today, 52.13 through 53.12, our passage today begins with the climax. And then we're going to see that even though we know the climax in advance, there's always been a lot of confusion about the servant even about the lord jesus christ he's regularly misunderstood so we're going to see the climax at the beginning which is interesting then we're going to walk through the confusion about the servant and then we're going to see that the confusion about the servant actually leads to the climax actually leads to the climactic work the servant does and what we're going to see at the end is some real clarity about what the servant did and why we needed him to do that work so the climax, the confusion, and then some real clarity from the passage, if God helps us. Let's dive in together. First of all, the climax of the servant's central task. Here's how the passage begins. Yahweh is speaking, and just as he did in Isaiah 42, 1, behold my servant. Here again he says, behold my servant, he shall act wisely. Some translations say he shall succeed or prosper in old testament ways of thinking the man who fears yahweh and wisely does what yahweh says will succeed even if he sought into eventually uh, his life will produce the fruit that yahweh wants it to and so what we're told here yahweh says behold my servant he shall act wisely he will succeed he's going to accomplish the work that i've given him to do because he's going to live in the true fear of god and true wisdom and then look at these amazing words i hope they sound familiar here's what yahweh says about the servant yahweh who will not share his glory with another Yahweh is holy and worthy to be worshipped. Yahweh says, behold my servant, he will succeed. He will, shall be high and lifted up and highly exalted. Does that sound familiar to you? That Yahweh says the servant will be high and lifted up and highly exalted. It should sound familiar because we've studied Isaiah recently in other contexts. And when Isaiah first was ushered by Yahweh's grace into Yahweh's presence, into his true heavenly holy throne room. 
What did Isaiah say? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, what? High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And the whole scene was filled with Yahweh's glory. And there even are creatures who exist just to say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so here, that Yahweh who's filled with glory says, behold, my servant, my servant shall be high and lifted up. My servant shall be highly exalted. Later in uh, the, the book of Isaiah, in chapter 57, here's something else that Yahweh says about himself. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. This is Isaiah 57, 15. Who, who is this one who's high and lifted up? Who's the one who inhabits eternity? Whose name is holy? I dwell in the high and holy place. He had showed it to Isaiah. And also with him, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see who Yahweh is? He's the true God who is deservedly high and lifted up. And this is what he's been saying to his people. See me alone is the one who deserves me high and lifted up. Don't go to the high places with your idols and lift them up. They're deaf, they're blind. Don't give my glory to anyone else. And then Yahweh says, that's really who I am. But there's one place where he says, someone else should be high and exalted and lifted up. And that is my servant. So that's the climax given to us at the beginning of the fourth servant song. Eventually, the servant should be held in remarkably high esteem. As a matter of fact, the servant should share in the glory and the identity of God himself. Don't miss that. The servant who will be despised and rejected. The servant who brings Yahweh's justice to the nation is the light of his salvation to the nations. The servant who will be mistreated, he will eventually be rightfully esteemed. He will be high and lifted up and highly exalted. You got to grab that picture. It really matters because the next verse says the same one will be marred beyond human semblance. The one who shares in the divine identity and glory of the Lord himself. He will be beat down so severely that people will not even recognize metaphorically that he's one of us. Isaiah says, Yahweh says to Isaiah, as many were astonished at you. Yes, you, Israel, because you deserve it, are going to go into exile and you're going to be exposed. and Everyone's going to see how weak and miserable you are. And people are going to be shocked and astonished at just how gross you are, Israel. Uh, here's what's kind of like that. His appearance, the servant's appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and its form beyond that of the children of mankind. The one who will be high and exalted and lifted up, he will also be so twisted and marred by human abuse that he'll be beyond recognition as a human. That's how, how it's going to go for him. And then here's the result of that. 
this is sort of Isaiah's introduction to the whole thing. So shall he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths at him. Here's what that means. The result of the high, the one who will be high and exalted being, getting the beat down is that he will sprinkle many nations. And so this word sprinkle, you can read it in all kinds of priestly texts where the spring, the priest sprinkled all kinds of things, sometimes with water, sometimes with blood to clean things that were unclean, to clean things that were sinful, to, to clean God's people and to clean instruments so that unclean things and defiled things could come into Yahweh's presence. So look at what he just said. One day my servant will be high and exalted and lifted up. He's going to get the beat down. And the result of that is the dirty nations will be able to come into God's good and holy presence because he will sprinkle them like a priest over them. He will make them clean. And Isaiah's meaning of kings will shut their mouths at him in the ancient world. If the king did it, all the people did it. And that's what he means. The nations are going to come and get washed and cleansed by this servant. He will sprinkle the nations. The Lord Jesus will make the nations clean so they can come into the presence of the one who is high and lifted up, whose name is holy, who inhabits eternity. That's the result of his work. So uh, that's the climax. You're told all that at the very beginning. But now I want you to see that there's, there's still a lot of confusion about the servant and it plays into God's central plan. Look with me. Secondly, at the confusion concerning the servant and his central task. And it's beginning of chapter 53, the first three verses. So s- some people are going to go out with this message. He should be highly exalted. Uh, he was beat down really severely. And that's how the nations get light and get salvation. Who's going to believe this? Who will believe that the king we've all been waiting for is treated like this? Who's going to believe that one who deserves to be highly and exalted will be treated so low and so shamefully? Who will believe our report when we see who he is and announce his name? There's a little bit of shock factor to it. And to whom has Yahweh's arm been revealed? So when this passage points to Jesus, we'll see it more and more clearly. It did 700 years before he was born. It did when he lived his life. It does so now after we see his life, his death and resurrection. But when, put yourself in the first century when, when God's people are looking at Jesus and he's from Nazareth. And the fancy teachers don't think much of him. And he doesn't have outward glory. And people are beginning to talk down about him. And then eventually he's condemned. And put to death, who would look at him in that context and said, oh, I see Yahweh's arm. I see the strength and power of glory doing, of Yahweh doing great things. And see, that's the question. To whom, who would believe that this is the arm of Yahweh revealed? Verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now, if you have a plant that's not doing well, bring it to Chrissy Holt. She's a green thumb. She'll fix it. Do not give it to me. Just bypass me immediately. I'm no horticulturalist, but I do know this. I do know that roots don't do great in dry ground. And see, that's the poetic point here. Jesus is coming out of 
God's people Israel. He's the true son of Abraham. He's coming in the line of David. He's the true king in the line of David that God had promised. And they were both a complete wreck, dry ground. So it's a mystery. Is he really going to come out of the the sons of Abraham who've always disobeyed? Is he really going to be a son of David as God promised when we've seen what happened to David himself and David's line? And then this gets to the real point, the second part of verse 2, 53-2. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Uh, If there had been Instagram in the first century, Jesus would have had zero likes. He wasn't outwardly impressive. You wouldn't have looked at him and said, oh, this, this must be the guy we're longing for. He was just a really normal, non-impressive guy. And all that led to the depth of the confusion. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men. He was held to be of low account. He can't be significant. He can't be important. He can't be Yahweh's arm of salvation. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, very familiar with sorrows and sufferings. As one from whom men hide their faces, I'd rather not look at him. He was despised to be repetitive and we esteemed him not. We didn't esteem him according to what he, who he truly was and what his real value was. No, we held him in low esteem. For all appearances, he deserved to be held in low esteem. He wasn't handsome, he wasn't impressive, and he was being mistreated. Who, how in the world could he be important? Now I'm going to tell you a story because I want to make the point. And a week ago, I thought it was a real story. I did some research because I'm kind of like that. And I found out the story's probably an ur- urban legend. So I'm going to tell you that on the front end, okay? If you know this is a real true story, you can come back later and convince me that I'm wrong. But I think it's an urban legend. But I, and maybe you've heard this story. You've heard the story about the woman uh, who was driving through her city going home. And the 18-wheeler came up behind her and just got a little too close to her car. And it made her kind of nervous. And so she began to drive faster and he came up and he was close, 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 stayed right on her back bumper. And she was kind of nervous, like, what is going on? Is he angry? Is he, is he drunk? Is he, you know, what, is he a violent man? What, what's, what's happening? So she changed lanes. He changed lanes. She, she weaved in and out. He stayed with her as, as close as he could. He got closer and closer. Uh, she sped up. He kept speeding up. Eventually, she's very terrified by, the, by this behavior. She doesn't understand this behavior. And so she takes an exit. He gets off the same exit. He follows her bumper to bumper. Then she turns right to get away from the exit. He follows her bumper to bumper. She pulls in the gas station. He pulls in right behind her, right up on her bumper. She's completely freaked out by now. She parks the car. She jumps out. She runs out of the car yelling, help, help. He jumps out of the cab of his truck. He runs to the back seat of her car, opens the back seat, pulls a man hidden from the back seat out and rescues her from a man who meant her great harm. I think it's an urban legend, but here's the point. Sometimes we're running from somebody that we've misesteemed, we've misunderstood. We think they're a threat, but really they're there to rescue us. It just might be that already today you are and have been relating to Jesus just like this. Have you noticed that he's hunting you in your conscience? That he wants you to face reality in his presence. And what do we do? We run from him all the time. We run from him, his little voice in our conscience. We know what's good and right and true and we failed. And so we avoid Jesus. This is to 
despise him and hold him in low regard. We avoid him. We avoid him early in the morning and we get into business. We avoid him throughout the day. We're addicted to all kinds of distractions. We're a highly distracted and busy people. And part of what's behind all of that business and all of that distraction is running from the only one who can rescue us. Here's what Jesus says to you and me about our conscience. Do not hide anything from me. I've seen it all. He isn't coming to condemn us, but to rescue us. What about the guilt? Jesus is not chasing you down to pin you against the wall and condemn you, but because he's been condemned in your place, he's chasing you down so you'll listen to his voice and turn away from those things that aren't giving you life and come back to him. Don't treat the rescuer like a threat. Don't run from him. Don't hold him in the wrong esteem. It's love that's coming after you. Stop and listen. That leads to the clarity regarding the central task of the servant. Why is he held in low esteem? What is it? Why is he rejected? Why is he hated? Why is he abhorred? Why are people running from him? Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That isn't wrong. It's just misunderstood. In his own generation, Jesus' people looked at him and said, oh, he's under the judgment of God. And he was, but not because he deserved to be judged. We'll see, it's because they did, because we did. Verse five, why was he stricken, smitten, and afflicted? He was, why was he? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are all healed. Let me retranslate some of those words for Transgressions, rebellions, rebelliousness. Iniquities, our twistedness. He brought us peace because we've been alienated from God, ourselves and others, and especially from God. With his wounds, we're healed. He's dealing with our brokenness. So first of all, he was pierced for our transgressions. Here's what that word means. You and I are rebellious people. He was pierced. He was run through. He was put to death for our rebellions. This, what this means is actually really simple. There are things that we know God has commanded us to do and we've rebelled and said, I will not do those things. And there are things that God has forbidden us to do and we've said, I will do those things. Here's an example. We're all deceitful. I was greatly tempted not to tell you that my story today was, about, was an urban legend. But aren't we all like that? Isn't there deceit in all of us? And hasn't God clearly said, thou shalt not lie? In of us, in all of us, there is rebelliousness. We refuse to do the things that God has said, this is what you must do. And we do those things he said, you shall not do them. That is to rebel. Here's the good news. Well, that was the bad news. The good news is he was pierced for our transgressions, for our rebelliousness. Why was he so miserable? Why did he get the beat down? Because he was taking the place of the rebels. He was treated like a rebel, even though he was innocent. But what about the next word, iniquities? He was crushed, that is, 
put to death for our iniquities. Our iniquities, a great way to understand is just that our twistedness. Not just what we say and not just what we think and not just our behavior, but inwardly we're twisted out of order. We're not the way we're supposed to be. And he was crushed, put to death because we're twisted out of order. Here's an example. Gossip is a perverted, a a twisted activity. God gave us our tongue that we would glorify him with it and love and serve our neighbors. But what do we do when we gossip? When we gossip, uh, we lather up in ourselves being the source of the insider information. It just feels so good to know what's really going on. And not only to know what's going on, but to share it in ways that I know I shouldn't. But, you know, I, don't want, I want you to understand this situation a little better. I want you to know the, the, the rest of the story behind this person. And often when I'm gossiping and just saying things that I have no right or reason to actually say about uh, this person over here, it might just be the case that now you, I'm helping you see you should actually hold them in a little bit lower esteem. And maybe you should think a little more highly of me. Do you see that that's twisted? The very tongue that God gave us because we're made in the image of a God who has spoken all things in existence, who deserves to be glorified with all of our speech acts. We take the tongue he's given us and we dishonor him by dishonoring his image bearer and we like it. We feel good that we're the insider source of information. I can tell you what's really going on in this situation. It makes us feel good that we have the information. And as we share it with others, we're doling it out and bringing credit to ourselves and running other people down. And we like it. That's twisted. He was crushed because we're twisted. He was run through because we're rebellious. And he was crushed because we're twisted. Now, when we gossip, what happens? Well, God's dishonored. Our neighbor's dishonored. They're now held in lower esteem. But guess what else? We're unhealthy. That kind of twisted behavior, that kind of twisted that comes from the heart, when I participate in gossip, I'm becoming less whole. I'm becoming greedy for God's glory and to be seen better than my neighbor. And so when I participate in that kind of twisted iniquity, I'm becoming less whole, less complete, less the person God made me to be. So not only was he pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, but also with his wounds, we are healed. Because I believe in him and put my faith in him, I'm becoming the kind of person that renders my mouth back to God for his glory and use my tongue to bless others rather than to curse. Because by his grace, not only am I forgiven, but I'm becoming with you a more whole and healthy person. Because he, here's the central task, here's the central work, he took our place. For all of my rebellions and for all of my iniquities, he took my place. And he, on the cross, was treated as one who was full of iniquity, mine and yours, and full of rebellions, mine and yours. And he who was holy and righteous and just was treated like the rebel that we are. By the way, who, who, who do these descriptions describe? Look at verse 6. A couple of us like sheep have gone astray. 
we've turned three or four of us to his own way. Verse 6 is a wonderfully flattening verse in the most kind of holy and beautiful way. Every single one of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We are wayward and we've participated in waywardness. Every one of us has gone our own way. Every last one of us. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus yet, you're sitting around a lot of people who believe in Jesus and we don't think we're better than you. We say we have all gone astray. We say every one of us has gone our own way. We've run headlong into rebellion, but Jesus came and saved us and he'll save you too. And then if you believe in Jesus with us, this is this wonderfully flattening reality. We cannot think of ourselves as better than one another. We're just rescued sinners, all who'd been astray and all who'd gone our own way. We wallowed in waywardness and celebrated godless independence, but he came and rescued us. And that's how verse six in, we all have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the first part of the clarity. The clarity that you and I need to see is that the servant who really is God's son, he suffered for us. He was pierced for our rebelliousness. He was crushed for our sin and iniquity. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. Yahweh laid it on him. And that's the first piece of the clarity. It was all for us. God's son, all glorious, eternally wonderful, perfect, and true, became a servant and listened to his father's voice and obeyed all the way to his death and that death on a cross in the place of sinners so that we would be perfectly forgiven. And finally, here's another piece of the clarity. The second part of the clarity, not only was it for us, but this was always God's plan. The eternal God, the triune God. Look with me, verse 10. Yet it was Yahweh's will to crush him. Verse 9 said, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He's different than Isaiah. He's different than me. He's different than you. And it was Yahweh's will to crush him. And he, the Lord, has put him, the servant, to grief. When his soul, the servant's soul, dying, giving his life away, makes an offering for guilt. He, the Lord God, will see his offspring and shall prolong his days. And Yahweh's will shall prosper in his head. So see two things here. The, the second part of the clarity, this was God's plan. This was God's will. Even the rejection. All the suffering, all the sorrows, all the misery, all the rejection. It was God's plan so that you wouldn't have eternal sorrow and misery and you wouldn't be rejected. God's plan was that his own son would be rejected by sinners so sinners would not have to be rejected by him for all eternity. How great. But see, that last point pulls us back into the first point which was the climax of the beginning. Look at the exaltation. We'll end here before we come to the king's table. Look at what it says. Yahweh's will shall prosper in his hand. I'm so glad there's lots of women in this church who've been studying the book of Revelation. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yahweh's will will prosper in the hand of the servant 
who gives away his life and love. Don't you remember? Isaiah was brought into Yahweh's presence. He saw his glory. He had a throne room vision. Well, John, one of Jesus' disciples, likewise had a throne room vision. He is brought into the Lord's presence and the Lord is sitting on the throne. And he has a scroll in his hand with seven seals on it. And this is how God's whole redemptive plan is going to get worked out over all the nations. But no one can open the scroll. And they're saying, who is worthy to open the scroll, to break its seals and to read it? And there's no one in heaven and on earth who is worthy. And so John begins to weep. But a mighty angel comes to John and says, weep no more. And then John hears what the angel said, behold, the lion of Judah, but that, that's what he heard, but that's not what he sees. He heard the lion of Judah and he looks with his eyes and he sees a lamb like he'd been slain. And it's the lion of Judah who's the true lamb of God, Jesus, our Lord, who goes up to the father on his throne and takes the scroll out of his hand and opens it. And what happens? All of heaven breaks into worship. Don't you see? He shall be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The very servant who gave his life for you and me, he has been vindicated. He was innocent. He was crucified, the innocent one, in the place of the wicked. And when he had given his life in the place of rebellious sinners like you and me, on the third day, the father raised him from the dead and said, I vindicate him. He's the only obedient one. That one is exalted to heaven. All of heaven celebrates him. And here's the end of our passage. He now has all the glory. He gets all He's the heir of all things. He gets the portions. He gets the winnings. All the spoil goes to him. And you know what he does? When you believe in him, he shares that inheritance that he deserves with those who believe in him. He who impoverished himself to rescue us shares the enriching inheritance that he deserves with us so that we live with him and enjoy it with him in his glory forever and ever and ever. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you that this is true and this is your saving plan. Even though it involved the hands of the wicked and misunderstanding, rejection of your son, thank you that this is your plan so we would not be rejected. Oh, Father, we come to you now. Lord Jesus, we come to you to feast upon you as you offer yourself to us at this table. We are so thankful that you've been exalted And now we need your strength and your grace. So we come before you with open hands, seeking your promised grace. Amen.